We're in Matthew 16 today. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, I would encourage you to do so. Matthew 16, 21 through 23. Matthew 16. Matthew is the first gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first book of the New Testament. The large numbers are the chapters. So 16 is the large number. That's a chapter number. And then we're in the small numbers, 21 through 23. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. Matthew 16, beginning verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Father, we thank you for what you have revealed to us in this passage of Scripture that that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God that you are you built your church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Yourself, Lord Jesus, being the chief cornerstone, uh, that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for that reminder. Thank you, Jesus, for telling us this morning that you would suffer and die, be killed, and on the third day be raised from the dead, that you must do this. Lord, thank you for putting in your word the most terrible mistakes of your followers, that we might see them in real life and all their sin and failures to encourage us, God, that if you are merciful to Peter, you can be merciful to us. Lord, we ask that you would work in our lives as we've already prayed, that we would uh, not be a hindrance in any way to your work or your mission, that we would set our minds firmly on the things of God during this hour and all of our lives, and not on the things of man. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Last week, we studied what Jesus declared to Peter after Peter made his great declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we, we studied these verses, Matthew 16, 18 through 19. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want to briefly summarize last week's message because I think it's, it's very important. 
Uh, I normally do this kind of thing on Wednesday nights. I go over a little bit what we went last week, but I, I, I don't normally do that in the sermons, but I want to do that this week. So a, a brief summary of, of those words from last week. Number one, Peter was not the first pope. This text certainly teaches that Peter was and would be a leader in the church. Uh, the Bible says, Jesus says, call no man Pope, Matthew 23, 9, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Pope is Latin for Papa, Father. Jesus said, call no man Pope. Jesus, in our passage today, calls Peter Satan. That might be a helpful indicator that he's not the first Pope. At the very least, this shows that Peter was not a special representative of Christ on earth as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. We see later, Peter was rebuked by Paul. So after the resurrection, after Pentecost, after the Spirit's poured out, we see Paul uh, rebuke Peter that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Peter is not infallible. He wasn't infallible in Matthew 16, and he's not infallible in Galatians 2. God, when He tells us who He's giving to the church as leaders in leadership, did not give us a pope. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. No mention of an emperor over the whole church. That is Jesus. Peter was married, and so the Roman Catholic Church wrongly teaches that popes and priests aren't to marry. 1 Corinthians 9, 5 tells us that Peter was a married man. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's Peter. Peter viewed himself as an elder like other elders. 1 Peter 5, 1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. He saw himself as a fellow elder among other elders. And, and finally, nothing here in Matthew 16 or anywhere else in the Bible speaks of a pope over all the church who has supreme authority over the church or is the representative of Christ on earth or has a succession plan where this office will be passed down so that there, would be all, there, so that there always would be a pope on earth. There's just nothing in the Bible that teaches that. And so we thought about that. Peter was not the first pope. But Peter and his right confession about Jesus is the rock. And so... Uh, uh, evangelicals sometimes running away from the, 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 the false teaching that there, there's a pope go too far and try to get Peter totally out of the text. I don't think that's right either. Peter and his right confession, his true confession about Jesus is the rock on which Jesus was built his church. And this is what the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, that God would build his church on the uh, foundation of the apostles of whom Peter was the chief apostle. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And we heard from Jonathan Lehman, Jesus will build his church not on words and not on people, but on people who believe the right gospel words. Jesus will build the church on confessors. Jesus then gave Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom, which Peter uh, which gave Peter the authority to do what Jesus had just done with him, to act as God's official representative on earth for affirming true gospel confessions and confessors. The apostles had heaven's authority for declaring who on earth is a kingdom citizen and therefore represents heaven. 
Number three, Jesus then gave Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom. Uh, And we see that in Matthew 18, which we'll get to in a few weeks, months. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. So he's addressing all the disciples in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, 18, he says, Truly I say to you, plural, whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, plural, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus gave Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom. Now, today, since there are no more apostles, that might be a shock to some, you meet Bishop, Apostle, Reverend, so-and-so. <laughs> but uh, the apostles were those who uh, Jesus uh, 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 called in, in the first century who gave witness to His resurrection. And Paul called himself the last of the apostles. There are no more apostles today. And so now that the apostles are all with Christ in paradise, uh, 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 this, the church is the final authority under Christ to bind and loose on earth. How do we know this? Because Jesus tells us so in Matthew eighteen seventeen, in the text on church discipline. Who, who, who is the final authority to bind and loose? The church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. The church is the final authority under Christ to bind and loose on earth. We saw death, hell, and Satan can't stop Christ's church, so death couldn't stop Jesus. It can't stop His church. It won't stop His church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, Jesus says. Next, Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven and unique authority as the first to open the gates of heaven through the preaching of the gospel. So just going into a little bit more detail about what these keys are, Peter will be the first to preach the gospel on the great day of Pentecost and use the keys of the preaching of the gospel to open the gates, to loose the gates of heaven to all sinners who would repent and believe. And then finally, this binding and loosing function, again, is finally given to the church through the preaching of the gospel and through church discipline. And we looked at Matthew 18, 15 through 18 in a little bit more detail to see this, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so uh, God has given Jesus... King of kings and Lord of lords has given this binding and loosing authority to make declarative statements on who and who is not a Christian to local churches. That's one of the reasons we emphasize membership here so much. What does this mean? Does this mean that we at Alton Baptist Church make Christians? No, but it means that God has given the church the authority to declare who is, who is. And again, Jonathan Lehman is very helpful here. And he uses the analogy of, of, of a citizen of a, of a country, citizenship in, in countries. He, he writes, I used to live and work in Brussels, Belgium. The U.S. Embassy there formally recognized me as a U.S. citizen and gave me a new passport when my old one expired. Even though I am a U.S. citizen, 
The embassy possesses an authority I don't possess, the authority to speak for and make provisional decisions on behalf of the government of the United States. By giving the keys of the kingdom first to Peter and the apostles and then to the gathered church, Jesus gave churches a similar authority to the U.S. Embassy in Brussels, the authority to make provisional judgments concerning what is a right confession of the gospel and who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus meant when he said churches possess the authority to bind and loose on earth what's bound and loosed in heaven. He didn't mean they could make people Christians or make the gospel what it is, no more than the embassy could make me an American or make American laws. Rather, Jesus meant they could make official pronouncements or judgments concerning the what and who of the gospel, what is a right confession, and who is a true confessor. That's a summary of what we meditated on last week. In our text today, we see Jesus turn the minds of his disciples to his work. So there was a focus in the last couple weeks on the person of Christ. Peter's confession was focused on the person of Christ. Who is the Christ? And Jesus today is turning our minds and the minds of his disciples to his work, what he would do, what the Messiah came to do. Peter declared his person, now Jesus declares his work. We also see in our text today that Peter and the disciples have a lot more to learn about their king. (laughs) He's a suffering king. We've got to get Jesus' person and work right, according to the Bible, and faithfully preach it all. Point number one. Jesus declares his suffering, death, and resurrection. Jesus declares his suffering, death, and resurrection. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 16 again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus must suffer greatly at the hands of those who should have led the people to worship him. This is, this is sad. This is astonishing. This is shocking. But, but because, you know, when, when, we, when we hear the words chief priests and elders and scribes and Pharisees and things like that, we think bad guy. Like we've read the whole book. We know the end of the story. We know that these are bad guys. But, but for the disciples to hear this, th- these were, the, these were the, the, the good guys as they saw it at the time. They were the religious leaders. They, they were the people who taught the Bible. They were the ones that, 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 that the disciples and, and the people would have looked up to as the righteous ones. And, and Jesus is saying that he is going to suffer at their hands, that he must go. He must go to Jerusalem. I mean, notice that Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to happen before it happens. <laughs> he knows what's going to happen to him. He must go. He must go because it was ordained before the foundation of the world. He must go because the prophets uh, foretold that this would happen. He must go because uh, he, 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 he knows his father sent him into the world to die. He must go because ain't nobody going to stop him. <laughs> he must go because love compels him. 
He steadfastly turns his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He must go. And he's telling his disciples what's going to happen. He knows because he's God. He knows what's going to happen. He, he, he tells us what's happened, what's going to happen, and we can take that to the bank, so to speak. What he says is going to happen is going to happen. And sadly, these chief priests and scribes, these elders, these men who should have welcomed the Messiah and bowed down and worshipped Him and led the people to worship Him are the ones who are going to cause Him to suffer greatly and ultimately kill Him. Those of you who've read the Gospels know that these men accuse Jesus of the vilest of sins, of blasphemy. They mock Him, laugh at Him. They, they, they uh, gather the people around to, to, to shout to crucify Him. They bear false witness about Him. They get Him killed. They spit on Him. They hit Him. They beat Him. They treat Him with unbelievable evil. And that's what Jesus is telling His disciples He must do. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. The text tells us Jesus began to show His disciples that He must endure this suffering and rise from the dead. Jesus came as a teacher and a, as a preacher and we see Him here teaching and showing His disciples the truth about what He must do. But it took him a long time, to, it took the disciples a long time to finally get it. <laughs> Remember Jesus' discussion with two of his followers on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. They still didn't get it. It makes you wonder how many things we read in our Bibles or listen to in sermons that we still don't get. <laughs> Luke 24, 21 through 27, we see some of this discussion where these followers of Jesus are talking to Jesus about what they had hoped for in the Messiah, what they'd hoped He would be, what they hoped He would do. But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find His body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Now you could stop there and say, well, yeah, he told you he was going to do this like three or four times. But Jesus is there listening to them say this and he says, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish ones. Whew. Just notice that. There's the tough love of Jesus again. I mean, we're going to see it with Peter, get behind me, Satan, but there he is again, calling his disciples foolish. The tough love of Jesus, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beloved, remember that the whole Bible is about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation. And, and Jesus tells us here that his disciples should have gotten this not only from him telling them when he was with them before he died, but, but if they knew the prophets and Moses, they should have gotten this. Where, 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 where do we see the suffering of Christ in Moses? 
I bet if I asked Ellie, she'd tell me. But I'm not going to let you do that right now. Maybe next time. Where do we see the suffering of Jesus in Moses? Where's the first gospel in the Bible? The first time the gospel is proclaimed. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity. God is, God is, is cursing the serpent for what he did. I will put enmity between you, devil, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring, devil, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the seed of the woman, who ultimately is Jesus Christ, he would come and, bru and bruise the head, a mortal wound, the head of the serpent. He came to destroy the works of the devil. But the seed of the serpent would bruise his heel. He would die. He would die and suffer to make this happen. Genesis 49.10, we read in Moses, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah who would die and rise again to take the throne of his father David and it shall be an everlasting kingdom that shall have no end and the scepter shall not depart from Judah's hand. The line of the tribe of Judah is the one found worthy to open the scroll for he was slain. And ransom people for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. John 3, 14 through 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. There, even in that snake being raised up in the wilderness by Moses, we see a picture of Christ. In Exodus, we have Christ our Passover 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see the sufferings that would happen to the Christ in Moses. You see the sufferings that would happen to the Christ in the prophets. Isaiah 52, 14, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred. Speaking of the suffering servant, his face, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond the children of mankind. This is what Jesus suffered for you. He was so beaten, so spit upon, smote, so mocked, so, so had a crown of thorns put upon His head that, that you couldn't even tell He was a human being. He was so disfigured. For you. For the glory of His Father. Isaiah 53, 4 and 10 through 12, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He was put to grief. When His soul makes an offering for sin, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide Him a portion with the many, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He has poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We see here the suffering of Christ, but also the resurrection. He shall prolong His days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. We see both the death and sufferings of Christ in Isaiah and the resurrection. He shall prolong His days. He shall rise from the dead. Beloved, this was written some 700 years before Jesus was ever born. Do you, do you need a reason to trust the Bible? This is amazing. Jesus must go and do this for the prophets foretold that He would do this. Moses told that He would do this. I mentioned a, a new book that's come out on Wednesday by a, 
a, a, a friend, Ryan McGraw, and he goes through every book of the Bible and shows how there's a, a focus on Christ. And I want to read some of those to you. In Moses, in Moses, Genesis, Christ is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. In Exodus, Christ is the Redeemer. In Leviticus, Christ is the high priest who makes atonement for sins. You, maybe some of you in your Bible reading plan are going through Leviticus and you see all these sacrifices and this bloodshedding of animals. What's the point? It all points to Christ, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. In the prophets, Isaiah, Christ is the branch of David and the suffering servant defending God's holiness. In Zephaniah, Christ rejoices over his people with singing. In Haggai, Christ is the true and greater temple. And so the prophets foretold, Moses foretold of the sufferings of Christ. The, the, the disciples should have known this. They should have known this after Christ plain, it plainly tells them because Christ's sufferings were ordained by God. The greatest suffering and the greatest evil done by men's hands in this world we know was ordained by God. The cross was ordained by God and what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Acts 4, 27 through 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God planned and predestined the cross. He, he predestined this suffering for His Son. For a purpose. For a good purpose. To save many people. As Elizabeth Elliot has said, suffering is never for nothing. Suffering is never for nothing. Jesus' suffering was not for nothing. There was a purpose. And beloved, that should give us great hope. Because our suffering, your suffering, whatever it is you might be going through today, or what you've been through in your past, is never for nothing. If you are a blood-bought believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have God's promise that He is using that for your good to make you more like Jesus who suffered for you and gave you an example that you might follow in His steps. Christ's sufferings were ordained by God. Jesus is speaking to us today about those sufferings and we need to learn from this, beloved, that there is a centrality to the cross in the Christian life. There is a centrality to the cross in the Christian life. This is one reason... Jesus commanded silence back in verse 20. You remember that? Our last uh, uh, verse from last week, Jesus told the disciples not to say anything about Him being the Christ. One of the reasons is because they don't get what the Christ came to do. They don't get it fully. They don't understand. They're going to go around proclaiming what they've always thought the Messiah would do. Destroy all the Romans and bring in a kingdom now. Uh, on earth when Jesus said before Pilate my kingdom is not of this earth not yet they didn't get the whole message right of who Jesus is and what he came to do to suffer they didn't get that, that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah that the Christ would be a suffering Christ and this is the heart of, of, of the gospel. This is the heart of Christianity, that we have a suffering 
dead and risen Messiah. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Beloved, on the cross, Jesus was cursed by God. He was cursed by God. He, we deserve to be cursed by God. We deserve to be sent to hell. But Jesus took that hell. He took that curse upon himself that we might never face that curse. It, it wasn't just the, 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 the crucifixion that was, was painful, which it was. It was a very painful way to die. But the main pain is not the physical pain, but what he endured from his father's wrath and curse and judgment. And, and this is to be our boast. Our, 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 our boast is to be in the cross. Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to boast in the cross. God commands us to boast in the cross of Jesus that he suffered and died. And this is foolishness to many people. This is why Peter reacted the way he did. This, this seemed like foolishness to him that the Messiah would suffer and die and be killed. 1 Corinthians 22-24, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is, this is a stumbling block to Jews, Paul writes, inspired by the Holy, Holy Ghost. Beloved, this, this is what Ellie got right this morning. I just can't get it out of my mind. Jesus wrote 1 Corinthians. Do you know that? Jesus wrote 1 Corinthians. Jesus wrote Philippians. Jesus wrote Romans. Jesus wrote Acts. Jesus wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus wrote Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua, Judges, Luke. Ruth, Jesus wrote all that. Do you, do you know how that works? God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son is Yahweh who inspired all of Scripture. All of Scripture. All of Scripture is God-breathed. And that God who breathed out all of Scripture is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son wrote 1 Corinthians. Yes, Paul wrote it. But God the Son inspired him to write it. Do you understand that? Jesus is speaking in 1 Corinthians 1. Don't separate what God has joined. And, and, and this is our boast. The cross is our boast. 1 Corinthians 2.2 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What does that mean? I remember in seminary, I have a friend named Nick Badzik. He's a pastor. And we would go to chapel. And we would listen to sermons. And, and I'll, from my memory, it's, it's, he would come out of these sermons saying there wasn't enough cross in that sermon. And one time I said to him, Nick, it just seems like you want pastors to get up and say cross, 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 cross for 30 minutes. And then finally there'll be enough cross in that sermon. Well, I love him. He gets this passage 
I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What does that mean? D.A. Carson writes, the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Beloved, we as Christians can get taken up with so many other things that are right and good and true. We, 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 we can get, 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 get sidetracked by so many other concerns that we think are so important, that are so important. But there's one thing that outshines everything else. That everything else, the cross better move everything else to the periphery. The cross of Jesus Christ better be central. And we have to be careful that we give the cross its due weight, that it's the center of the Christian life and not some hobby horse, not some justice issue. I'm going to speak about abortion this afternoon, but if I ever make that the central issue, y'all better fire me because the cross of Jesus Christ is the central issue. What Paul means is that all he does is tied to the cross. He cannot talk long about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or the Christian doctrine of God or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He is cross-centered. We need to hear about that bloody cross. We need to sing songs about that bloody cross. We need to be reminded of the bloody cross in every single sermon. This is why I'm so thankful. I, I was reading an article that, uh, that uh, a man took John Piper's sermons and Tim Keller's sermons and did this search on how many times God and wrath show up together. And it was like, I think for Piper it might have been 22%, and for Keller it was 19%, and for Spurgeon it was 23%. And my thought was... I'm thankful for Mark Dever in my life, who was an example of me to in every single sermon, 100% of sermons, mentioned the wrath of God, the cross, hell, damnation, and salvation through Jesus. If I don't ever do that, please come and tell me afterwards. Pastor, you left out the gospel. If I'd brought my unbelieving friend this morning, I don't think they would have heard just a basic two or three minute gospel presentation to learn how to come to Jesus. If I don't do that in a sermon, please come and tell me because I will feel that I utterly failed you, utterly failed God, and utterly failed unbelievers who might come to this church and failed you to remind you of the gospel because the cross is the center. The cross is the center. It's the center for how you'll grow as a Christian. For how you grow as a Christian. Horatius Bonar, the, the secret of a believer's holy walk is his continual return to the blood of the surety, to the blood of Christ, and his daily communion with a crucified and risen Lord. All divine life and all precious fruits of it, pardon, peace, and holiness spring from the cross. All imagined sanctification which does not arise wholly from the blood of the cross is nothing better than Phariseeism. If we would be holy, we must get to the cross and dwell there, else notwithstanding all our labor, diligence, fasting, praying, and good works, we shall be yet void of real sanctification, destitute of those humble, gracious tempers which accompany a clear view of the cross. 
What does that mean? What does it mean that the, the key and center of your growing in holiness is a clear view of the cross and a continual returning to the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, I prayed it this morning. And, and I took those words from, from Dane Ortland. There are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. In other words, the cross, beloved, reminds you how much Jesus loves you. When Jesus said to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the scribes and Pharisees and uh, uh, teachers of the law and be killed and rise again. He's communicating the greatest act of love that he ever performed for his disciples. And so the cross reminds us that God loves us. And we're so prone to deny that and forget that. I was reading in my Bible plan this week the, the book of Job, and there's a one point where Job uh, says, I'll never see good again in this life. I'll never see good again in this life. All joy for me is over, and the Lord is not, His hand upon me is no more. Beloved, how often do you feel that way? How often do you feel that way that you'll never again see good in this life? That's why people get depressed. Because you believe that lie from Satan. That you'll never again see good. And, and Job says, I loathe my life. I wish I were dead. Why was I born? Those are lies from Satan. And, and you have to fight to remember what God says. And He says it most clearly and powerfully and beautifully in the cross that God loves you. God loves you. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. For the cross tells me so. You can live the Christian life either for the heart of Christ. You're trying to get God to love you. Or from the heart of Christ. You know that He loves you. You know that He loves you. You can't do anything to, 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 to make Him love you more. And you can't do anything to make Him love you less. As many have said. You can live for the smile of God or from the smile of God. You're always trying to get God to smile upon you, which is like a slave, a servile slave. Or you can live from the smile. Because Christ has died, because Christ has risen, God smiles on you. And you live in His smile. You can live for a new identity as a son or daughter of God or from this new identity that God has already given you in Christ because of the cross. For your union with Christ, you can live. Or from your union. The battle of the Christian life is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ's. That is, getting up each morning and replacing your natural orphan mindset with a mindset of full and free adoption into the family of God through the work of Christ, your older brother who loved you and gave himself for you out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. Beloved, meditate on the cross and, and live from the love of God in Christ for you that he's shown you on the cross. The cross is central to the Christian life. And on the third day, Jesus told them he would be raised. You sort of wonder if Peter heard that part. <laughs> On the third day, he, he told them he would be raised from the dead. Jesus rose up from the dead. 
He told the disciples what he would do. And they don't get it then. They don't get it from reading Moses. They don't get it from the prophets. They don't, they don't even get it after he, 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 he dies and rises. They're like surprised. They don't get it. We are so bad that all this was needed. We are so bad that the death and resurrection of Jesus was needed. Was needed. Friend, if you're visiting us this morning, do, do you understand that? Do you understand that you are so bad, so sinful, that you have so rebelled against God? in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds, by what you have done and, and by what you have left undone, that you deserve God's wrath in hell forever. That's what we deserve as sinners apart from Christ. We're that bad. And the only remedy to, to, to take away our badness and save us from the wrath of God is for Jesus to come and bear that wrath. To bear that hell, which is what he told his disciples he would do in this passage. That, that he would come, that he would live a, a perfectly obedient life and be the pure, spotless Lamb of God and take God's wrath and curse and punishment upon himself and die and be buried and on the third day rise from the dead so that all who turn from their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Friend, have you done that? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? I urge you to trust in Him today and be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Believe that news. Share that news. Pray that people would believe that news. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And sadly, point number two, we see Peter rebukes the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter rebukes the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, does this seem like a logical rebuke in any way? Jesus has just told His disciples that He is going to build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and they viewed the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the one who's going to come and deliver them from Roman tyranny. This is the battle warrior who's going to give the victory over all their enemies. So is there any sense in which we should sympathize with Peter? That his rebuke seems logical? I mean, from the Messiah to who's going to build his church and the gates of hell? That means not Satan, not death, not Romans. Nobody is going to prevail. And then he says, I'm, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to suffer and die. Well, it may seem logical, but this is an unbelievably insane rebuke by Peter. <laughs> this is an unbelievably insane rebuke by Peter. Beloved, you should never rebuke God. Amen. You should never rebuke God. You, you, we don't tell God what He should and shouldn't do. It is always insane to think and act like Jesus is wrong 
about anything. It is always insane to think and act like Jesus is wrong about anything. It's always insane to disobey Jesus. Sin is insanity. It's always insane to rebuke Jesus. Peter wanted glory without suffering. He wanted the crown without the cross. I heard one pastor say, never, Lord, that, that, that sequence of words should never go together. <laughs> never, Lord? What is Lord? Lord is master. Lord is king. Lord is God. Lord is the one you bow to. You never say never, Lord, <laughs> concerning what the Lord has said he's going to do. Never, Lord, should never come out of your mouth in the sense Peter says it. D.A. Carson writes about Peter. He confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and then speaks in a way that implies he knows more of God's will than the Messiah himself. <laughs> Do you see how ridiculous that is? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you're going to do it my way. <laughs> Beloved, are you in the habit of rebuking God? Do we ever act this way? Don't do it like this, Lord. Let me tell you what my life should be like. Are we in the habit of ever acting like Peter? Thinking that we know better than God does about how to run our lives. About the things that should come into our lives. About the things that shouldn't come into our lives. About the gifts He gives. About the gifts He withholds about the hardships, about the trials, about the suffering. No, Lord. Never, Lord. Not this. Do we do that to, to Jesus? Beloved, realize what, what Peter was doing. James Boyce puts it this way. Peter was asking for his own damnation. I mean, think about the implications of Jesus not dying on the cross. This is what Peter was asking for. <laughs> never, Lord. You'll never die on the cross. And so I'll always go to hell and all the people you're elect will die and go to hell. Your father will not be glorified. His righteousness will be impugned. That's what should happen, Lord. My plan's better. That's what Peter thinks. But you see how ridiculous that is? Because Peter doesn't know the whole story. Peter was asking for his own damnation. But he was so sure. Never, Lord. Not this. Beloved, again, how often are we so sure that we know what's best for us? Wow. When we may very well be asking for our own damnation. We don't know what we need. We don't see the whole picture. God does. And we can trust Him that He knows best. That He knows best. Yes. Are you a complainer? Are you a grumbler? Do you struggle to be content in your life because you're so focused on the things of man and not on the things of God? May God help us to see that, that Jesus is trustworthy, that we can trust Him with our lives, that He has a plan, that it's a good plan, that it's the best plan. And often when we ask for our own plans to be done, if He gave them to us, it would lead to sorrow and death and evil and pain and suffering. And He loves us too much to let us go our own way.
Beloved, many pastors today teach a life like Peter wanted for Jesus. No suffering, no trials, no hardship. God's will for you is that you be rich and wealthy and healthy and that you won't suffer. They teach. They wrongly teach. And I say to them, get behind me, Satan. Some will say that since Jesus went to the cross and suffered, that then we no longer need to suffer. And there is a no and a yes to that question. No, we will suffer. The Bible is very clear that those who desire to follow Jesus faithfully will suffer. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 11.24-27, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Uh, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. And he goes on and on about the sufferings he endured for the sake of the gospel. We're even told in Philippians 1 that it's a gift to suffer. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. All of Jesus' disciples were killed for their faith in Jesus except for John who was exiled from his homeland. And Peter, he didn't get this here, but he gets it later. And he writes in 1 Peter 4, 12-14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so that's the no. Because Jesus suffered for us, it, it does not mean that we will not suffer in this life. But there is a yes to the question. <laughs> there will be no suffering under God's condemnation. There will be no suffering in hell. There will, there will be, be no damnation or condemnation for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus has quenched all of that wrath. All of that judgment, all of that curse, we will not face so that we can joyfully and gladly face the suffering in this short little life compared to the eternity of glory and joy and satisfaction and delight we'll have for all eternity because of what Jesus suffered on the cross for us. And so Peter gets it wrong. And so the Christ, the Son of the living God, rebukes Peter. Look at verse 23 finally. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Beloved, we see here the tough love of Jesus, don't we? This, this is love. This is love. We have to uh, learn what love is from the Bible, not from what the culture tells us, that love is just, oh, you're okay, we're okay, everybody's okay, let's just have a group hug and accept everything and everybody. That's what the world says is love. Never call someone Satan. Huh. So harsh. So not nice. Well, I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm going to go with the lover of all lovers, 
the one who created love, the one who is love, I'm going to go with him and not what I see on TV. The tough love of Jesus. This is love. He, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> he says, you are, not, you, you are speaking like Satan, Peter. Don't hinder me, Peter, from my mission. This is the same, this is the same language, this exact same word used that Jesus used for Satan when Satan tempted him in Matthew 4. Remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil? Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Same word there. <laughs> he says to Peter, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. This is, this is loving of Jesus to rebuke Peter because Peter's wrong. Peter's wrong. And, and, and he needs to be corrected. And, and love corrects people when they're wrong. Love corrects false doctrine. Love corrects false teaching. Love corrects false behavior. And sometimes it comes with a bite. There should be some tough love in preaching. S.M. Lockridge, whom Mina is going to have the blessed experience of listening to this afternoon, he said that sermons ought to do four things. Instruct the mind, warm the heart, move the will, and tan your hide. Tan your hide is what my mama and granny used to tell me they were going to do to me when I got in trouble and did something I shouldn't have done. Give me a whooping on the rear end. Sermons should tan our hides. There should be some conviction of sin. George Whitfield said, It is a poor sermon that gives no offense, that neither makes the hearer displeased with himself nor with the preacher. <laughs> he says, Every sermon ought to preach ought to displease y'all in some way. You'd be offended. There should be some tough love in preaching. There should be some tough love in church discipline. We, we, we should follow Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 when someone becomes a member of a church and then they refuse to live like Jesus calls them to live and, and lives in sin and they don't repent and refuse to listen and we go to them and plead with them to repent and they refuse. We take two or three witnesses and plead with them to repent and they refuse. We tell, we tell it to the whole church and they refuse. What does Jesus tell us to do? Remove them from membership. That they might see their sin and repent and come back to Christ. There should be some tough love in parenting. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. There should be some tough love in any truly loving relationship. If we truly love each other, we're going to rebuke one another when we fall into sin. That's the loving thing to do. To care about each other enough. To love each other enough. To speak to one another when we see one another speaking or living not in accordance with the truth of God's Word. The Bible says open rebuke is better than silent love. And so we see the lover of all lovers give a strong rebuke to Peter. Why was Peter's rebuke satanic? Remember again how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? Matthew 4. 
You're hungry, so make these stones bread. Throw yourself off the temple and God will save you. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory if you will fall down and worship me. That's how Satan tempted Jesus. Peter's rebuke was satanic because anything that kept Jesus from accomplishing his mission of suffering and dying on the cross was evil and satanic. It was man-centered and not God-centered. Peter's rebuke was satanic because Peter was focusing on man's sinful ways of doing things and not God's perfect way of doing things. Al Martin said Satan would love for all of us to think and live as if our main purpose in life was to serve ourselves, to glorify ourselves. Desiring things to be done your way in your life rather than God's way is satanic. Not being content in God's way is satanic. Anger often results from this lack of contentment in God's way. This is satanic because your anger shows you are not resting in God's way, but you want your own way, man's way. Adults have temper tantrums too. And Ephesians 4, 26-27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Beloved, listening to any voice that does not speak the truth of God is satanic. Wasn't that the first temptation to Adam and Eve? Did God actually say? What do some of these voices say? I've been so faithful to God all these years. I think I deserve to go to heaven. That's satanic. I can walk with Jesus all by myself. I don't need the local church. That's satanic. I would be better off or happier if I did this thing that is absolutely contrary to God's will. That's satanic. It's always better to obey God and suffer than to sin and enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, one pastor said. Or, I'm too great of a sinner to be saved. That's satanic. I'm too, I've been too bad. God could possibly not love me and save me. That's satanic. The vilest of sinner who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. I'm a failure and God can never use me. That's satanic. Yes, He can. Yes, He can. God could not love me. That's satanic. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also graciously give us all things? There's no hope for me. I'm condemned. That's satanic. All of this is satanic thinking. And beloved, we need to continually bring ourselves back to the Word of truth, the Word of God, the preaching of the Word. That's why we so emphasize The Word here at this church, we need other brothers and sisters in our lives to remind us of the truth so that we don't think Satan's way, but think God's way. And Jesus tells Peter in verse 23, you're a hindrance to me. Jesus just called Peter the rock, and now he tells Peter he's a stumbling stone, a stumbling block, a stumbling rock. And Jesus won't have it. Jesus tells him, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Beloved, I encourage you to catch yourself when you do this. 
I love how Lloyd-Jones talk, talked about how we, we often talk to ourselves or, or we often listen to ourselves, and that's bad. You, you wake up in the morning and you start listening to yourself tell you all these things that are not true and are bad and are unhelpful and aren't in line with the truth of the gospel in the Bible. And Lloyd-Jones says you need to quit listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. Like the psalmist in Psalm 42, why are you downcast on my soul? Hope in God. Hope in God. Preach to yourself the truth of God's word and and be mindful of the things of God and not the things of man. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Peter eventually understood Jesus and the cross. Praise God, Peter eventually understood Jesus and the cross. This this is amazing to think about. Jesus told his disciples, not just here, but over and over about his death and his resurrection. And they didn't get it. Right? We see that. We see that in the Gospels. We see it in how they react to his death on the cross. They never got it. Beloved, how urgently this should remind us again that God must reveal His truth to us. You can tell your children something over and over and over again. And unless God reveals it to their hearts and changes them, they will not get it. I can preach things over and over and over again to you. You can hear them. I mean, Jesus told his disciples he would die and rise again, not once, not twice, three times, and and, and gave allusions to it in other places. And, And then he did it, and they still didn't get it. God has to act. God has to reveal truth. You you can be the greatest preacher, the greatest gospel share in the world, give the greatest tracts out that can be read, and unless God works, they will not get it. And so we must be people of prayer. We, we must be people of prayer, begging God, begging God to open the eyes of our children, begging God to open the eyes of the people we share the gospel with, begging God to open our own eyes that we would see what he wants us to see and get what, we, what he wants us to get. And Peter got it. Eventually, Peter got it. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24 he, write, he writes, inspired by Jesus, for to you, for, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he not, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Jesus crushed the serpent with passion fervent as the suffering servant. Jesus taught His suffering was a must. Gruesome horror your stomach would disgust. On that cross He was humbled to the dust, for on that bloody tree He was made our lust, that though ungodly we could be made just, If in Him alone by faith we trust and all our hopes and dreams on Him are thrust, He rose up from the dead to live robust to save our lives from ending in the dust where all our treasures die and end in rust. 
but we will live for glory, he discussed. All because our holy king was killed and crushed. The greatest lover of all had to be rejected. By his own bride, he was disrespected. Through pain and suffering, he'd be perfected. As Messiah, this was unexpected. Upon himself, all sin was collected, where on that cross he was erected to suffer and die alone dejected, but rose up from death all unaffected. The king of kings was resurrected to save all those whom God elected. God's glory he perfectly reflected. Now we're the church in love connected so we can live as he directed and will never be neglected, for by his love we're safe protected. Peter thought he should correct God's mistake. Rebuking Christ on suffering, he'd put a break. The Messiah's mission, he'd remake. Rebuking God is an insane mistake. He acted like the evil, tempting snake. The suffering mission, Christ would not forsake, so people could escape the fiery lake. If forsaking all this Christ they'd take, he alone can heal your heart they'd break. For he alone can fill your life's deep ache. Since with his love, he'll make you quake, shake, and all other loves forsake. Because his sight compels a double take when to his beauty your eyes awake. Jesus loved Peter with a stern correction. With this word, he crushed Satan's insurrection. Some loves received with only thick skin protection. Peter's mind was set on man's direction. God's plan is always the best selection. The way up's the way down in God's perfection. To die is to live Christ's life reflection. On that cross, he took the greatest rejection so you would be loved with greatest affection. He loved before time when he chose your election. From the greatest lover, there's no more rejection for he proved his love by death and resurrection. Christ Jesus showed them many a thing of how he'd suffer, die, and sting. From all the hatred men would bring, but on the third day we will sing, for he shall win our risen king, forever take away death's sting. Don't focus on man's selfish fling and be like Satan's vile offspring, but turn to God, to Christ you'll cling. Set minds on God's great everything. From Him all joy and life does spring, who died and rose to make you sing. Father, we beg you this morning that we would get what you say to us. Lord, we, we, we don't want to be like your disciples who get told things by Jesus over and over and over again, and yet they don't get it. Lord, we, we want to grow. We, we want to get what you're saying to us. We want to understand, Lord, the centrality of the cross, the centrality of your sufferings, Lord Jesus, the, the importance of your death and resurrection for how we grow in holiness and righteousness. We, we want to grow in our contentment, in, in our death to complaining, in our death to worry and anxiety, in our, our death to being so mindful of the things of men and not mindful of the things of you. Lord, we, we want to cease rebuking you in our hearts and in our thoughts. We want to cease in thinking that we know better than you. We, we want to cease in trying to get the crown without the cross. So, Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts even to prepare us to hear what you have to say to us next week that we must take up our cross and follow you. And so, God, help us and be with us. Help us to know your love. Help us not to believe Satan's lies that, that, that you don't love us, that you're against us, that there's no more good for us in this life. 
Help us to believe the truth of God. Help us to fight to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and the Word of Christ. Help us to tell Satan to get behind us when we should and trust in You and look to You and hope in You and believe Your truth. Father, we pray if anyone is here this morning has not come to a knowledge of Christ and been saved, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day they believe in the sufferings of Christ and the person of Christ and the resurrection of Christ for the first time and are born again. Lord, please do that, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.